A common criticism of the local church is that it's a collection of people who are pretending to be better than they are for a short period of time, showing themselves to be confident of things they still have questions about. I hope this is becoming the kind of church where you can be honest, honest to God, honest with each other. Um, I certainly want to model that. and. I wonder, it's a question for you, do you ever come to church or just walk through life with questions for God? Do you have a short list of things you're going to ask Him when you see Him? I hear that all the time. When I get to heaven, I'm going to ask the Lord. He may grant us that opportunity. My personal conviction is we're going to be too awestruck. We'll probably forget about the questions pretty quickly. But part of the real discipleship, part of really following Jesus in the world is disciples have all kinds of questions. One of the common questions is, what is God's will for my life? You ever asked that one? Are any of you currently asking that question? All right. I said we could be honest. There's two honest people here in the front row. Everybody else appears uninterested in, uh, in the topic this morning. Hope that's not true. We all have all kinds of questions for God. Today, I'm going to tell you from Scripture. I'm just going to read to you and then try to explain to you. That's our approach here at Crosspoint. We open up a passage of the Bible. We try to find the idea of that passage and explain it and apply it to everyday life. That's certainly what Paul intended from this letter. He was writing to a normal group of Christians, a group of Christians he had never met. They were in a city of not great importance. There were neighboring cities around them that already surpassed them in strategic value. But a local guy had heard of Jesus and brought the gospel, brought the good news to them. He had apparently tried to systematically teach them all that he could about Jesus, and a church was born in the ancient city of Colossae in modern-day Turkey. It was a tough place for the good news of Jesus to flourish because they were saved out of paganism. All kinds of things circulating around them and the soil that they grew up in had all kinds of gods that were primarily used in people's religious experience to get whatever those people wanted out of life. You can go to Israel even today, even in Israel, and find in certain places niches and Greek inscriptions where they've had basically a buffet of gods where idols once stood, and if you had certain kinds of problems, you threw yourself on the mercy of a certain kind of god. Those were their historical backgrounds. On top of that had been layered what Paul himself once believed, a very strict form of Judaism that was all about rule-keeping, had to do with being born into the right nation at the right family and doing all the right things. Gentiles were welcome, but they had to convert and they had to adopt a diet. The men had to be circumcised. They had to do a long, seemingly never-ending list of things, and then they would be pleasing to God. In that hard soil, a Christian church, a real group of disciples of Jesus had been born. And never having met them, Paul wrote them a letter explaining to them the supremacy of Jesus to invite them to trust Jesus fully, to not pay attention to 
shun these old voices from their past and from their present as false teachers came to them and basically had a message like this. You heard about Jesus? That's a great start. Now let me show you how to get all the way to the finish line. Really, that's the invitation of religion everywhere. Whatever you call it, whatever its name is, all the world's great religions invite people to do certain things so that they will be pleasing to God. Christianity alone says that God isn't sitting high on a mountain with many roads leading up to Him. Christianity announces that God, in the person of Jesus Christ, came down off the mountain, came down into the valley of our sin and our brokenness, and He met us exactly where we are, and now we can be absolutely certain that we have eternal life. That's the good news that Colossae had received. Now Paul writes them this letter to strengthen them in their trust in Jesus, and he's going to talk to them today in the passage we're reading, beginning in verse 9. He's going to talk to them about God's will. Let me show you what I mean. Colossians chapter 1, verse 9. Paul says, and so from the day we heard, he's referring back up to verse 4, we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus. So, from the day we heard, in other words, the day we heard you placed your faith in Jesus, here's what we've been doing. We have not ceased to pray for you. Now, what follows offers you a really big opportunity to learn how to pray because you're going to get to listen to someone who knew Jesus very well and served him with his whole heart. You're going to listen to how Paul prays for other people. One of the questions that I sometimes ask myself is, it's happened this morning between services. I was approached by two or three people in tears with problems so big, so real, so bigger than me or anybody else on earth that sometimes you don't even know how to pray for people. Have you ever had that experience? You're in good company. Paul says in Romans 8.26, we don't know how to pray as we should then he gives you the good news. The Holy Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words, okay? If you don't have the words, God still understands. But you're going to get a treat. In verse 9, Paul is going to pray. He is writing down his prayer. He says, from the day we heard you trusted Jesus, we haven't stopped praying for you. There's one indication of Christian maturity, by the way. Mature Christians are always praying for, here's the magic word, others not only for themselves. Parents are always looking out for the kids. You are encouraged, you are invited, God is delighted when you pray for yourself, but it shows a greater heart and a greater wisdom to pray not only for yourself, but to pray for others. And Paul says in verse 9, from the moment we heard that you trusted Jesus, we have been praying for you, and here's what we've been praying for. Asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of His will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. Understanding the Bible is not actually complicated. It's a miracle of God showing you His Word, but good habits of understanding what the Bible is actually saying. It's profound, it's beautiful, it's wonderful, but it's not complicated. What's Paul praying for according to verse 9? What does he want for the Colossians? I pray that you would what? That you would be filled with knowledge of what? Paul says, here's what I'm praying for. I am praying for your understanding. 
I pray that you will know what God wants you to do. I'm praying specifically that you will know how God wants you to live. From the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of His will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. Every word counts in that little verse. Paul says, I want you to have a knowledge of God's will and have spiritual wisdom and understanding. They already had earthly wisdom and understanding. Practical instruction of who God was and how to please Him, that they had grown up with that. They had people coming to them with all kinds of ideas and competing voices. They had, they had jobs, as you keep reading, they had jobs, they had kids, they were in marriages, they had friendships, they had all the trappings of a normal life on earth. Paul says, what I want you to have now, verse 9, is I want you to have spiritual wisdom and understanding. I want you to see your life from God's point of view. I want you specifically to know what He wants and how He wants you to live. That's what verse 10 tells me. He's praying that you may be filled with the knowledge of God's will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to Him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. Please don't miss that. The point of knowing God's will is always to do God's will. It's never simply to accumulate more information. God is a person. He is the creator of the universe. He's not like you. He made you. But you're made in His image, and you were made to love and enjoy Him forever. It's a personal relationship. He's not abstract. He's not a concept. He is not merely the greatest idea in literature. He is an actual person with mind, will, and emotions with plans and ideas, in fact, with a definite idea and plan for how he is going to consummate human history. And here's the astonishing thing of knowing his son Jesus. When you know Jesus, you know God himself, and you can know what God himself wants because he himself can fill you with wisdom and understanding of his will, and you can walk it out in everyday life. Don't miss that, or this will just be a head trip for you. One of the deficits of Christian church in the United States where we have so many resources for Bible study, I probably bought 3,000 pages worth of commentary for this sermon series, and somebody just left me about 300 pages more on my desk between services. Thank you, by the way looks awesome. But there is much to learn. Understand Paul's context. Look at verse 9 and verse 10. What Paul is praying for the Colossians is that they will know God and what he wants, how he wants them to live, so that that knowledge results in an actual walk a Hebrew expression drawn from Paul's understanding of what a spiritual life looks like. You're just walking with God. You're following Him. There's a personal relationship between someone who's in charge and someone who is learning. And the outcome of that is you walk through life in all of these different facets of life in a way that God finds fully pleasing and a life that shows up as worthy of Him. Not that you've earned it, but that it represents Him. 
Here's the miracle of being a mature Christian. You actually remind people of Jesus. You're not exactly like Him, and you won't be until you meet Him, but as you continue to walk with Him, you look more and more and more like Him. You think, act, feel, choose, spend, eat, drink, do everything in a way that more and more points to someone greater than yourself, more loving than yourself, points to Jesus. Paul says, that's what I'm praying for. And when he says, I want you to know all of God's will, you may, have, you may struggle a little bit with what I'm going to tell you next. Okay? The single greatest question I'm asked as a pastor is questions regarding God's will. And those questions almost always have to do with how to make a living or how to succeed in life, not what Paul is referring to here as God's will. Let me put two concepts together to try to hang that on. God's will for His children is really spelled out, and it's actually quite clear. God's guidance to His children, that's another topic. Let me prove it. Somebody came to Jesus, and they said, Jesus, what is the greatest commandment in the law? What did Jesus say? Do you remember? He said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second he said is like it. What was that? Love your neighbor. Love Love God, love people. That's what God wants. Now, does God care about our vocations and our everyday choices? Absolutely. But let me put it under two headings to help you think about it, I think, a little more biblically. I call that God's guidance, not God's will. Because I want to keep in my, it's just my own invention, but I want to keep in my mind Very clear, the idea of how I am to live, think, feel, and act, God has made that clear in His Word, much as I have for my children. I have two sons. My will for them sounds like this. I want them to be men who love God. I want them to be men who love people. I want them to be honest and loyal. I want them to be hardworking. I want them to be grateful men. These big headlines, life-defining, foundational truths, that's my will for them. Their day-to-day life, I'm willing to give them guidance, but if they're walking in that will, if they're becoming that kind of men, those kinds of things are far less important to me because if they're loyal and they love God and they love people and they're hardworking and grateful, they can do as they please. Another example from marriage, I've been married for nearly 25 years. So if I want to take a day and honor my wife and show her through a day that I've organized how special she is to me, I probably won't get it exactly right. I won't make every choice just as she would have. But I won't go far wrong because what's guiding my relationship with her is I understand who she is and I love her. What Paul's writing about to the Colossians here is he wants them to understand from God's point of view what kind of people God wants them to be and how he wants that to show up in everyday life. What I'm telling you is don't settle for an in question that matters but is far less important. The question that Christians often ask themselves is, how do I make a living? How can I succeed in what I want to do? God cares about that, absolutely, but His will for you is actually greater, and that's what Paul is going to explain here. He wants, in verse 10, what God is looking for 
are disciples, followers of Jesus, people in his family who walk, live their everyday lives in a manner worthy of God, fully pleasing to him, that bears fruit in every good work and increases in the knowledge of God. There's a cycle here. Let me explain. This is one of the most basic things I could ever share with you about the Bible. The point of God showing up in your life and introducing you to his son Jesus who is the only one who can save you from sin because he's the only one who died on the cross for you and the only one who rose from the grave to give you eternal life. The whole point of God doing all that is so that you would know who he actually is. And when you know who he actually is, what he expects from that is that you will do as he says. And when you do as he says, you discover something that you didn't know before that he's even better than you thought, and that he's more easy to love, he's more trustworthy, he's better, he's wiser, he's more righteous than you imagined before you trusted him in the first place. So you know him, and you obey him, and that obeying of God leads to a greater knowledge of God, and guess what happens then? You obey him some more. And over time, I'm not telling you that this happens immediately. That's why Paul refers to it, and the Bible generally refers to the Christian life as a walk. You walk day by day with this question, God, show me who you are, show me how to live so that I can be pleasing to you. Your purpose for your life, apart from the knowledge of God, is too small. If you use God, as so is common in the West, if you use God as an instrument to get you the life you want, you've settled for something far smaller than God intended for you to know in the first place. This passage, in the brief little reading we've done through these verses, refers to him twice as your father. He's not a life coach. He's not a program to get the life you've always wanted. He is twisted into that. He is minimized into that, but he is much more than that. He who made everything, that's what's coming up in Colossians, the one who made everything and holds it together, he knows what is truly best, and he knows that the best thing he could ever do in the entire world is welcome you into his family and put you in a relationship with him. And that relationship operates on the basis of this little virtuous cycle where you know who God is, you're not accustomed to living this way, you grew up in the soil of your own beliefs far from God, you have other people telling you to keep doing it in your own way, you have other people telling you that Jesus is a nice start but he's not the whole story, but you ignore all those voices, you place your faith in Jesus, you do what he says. And in that obedience, you discover that he's even better than you imagined. And you know him just a little bit better, which makes it easier for you to trust him with the next step in life, and the next step in life, and the next step in life. What's the result of all that? Verse 10, you are bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. Jesus shows up in your whole life. You don't cherry-pick life and act like a Christian in certain situations at certain times because it suits you. That's a mean thing to do to a person. Anybody like to feel used? Do you quickly tire of so-called friendships who only come to you when they need something? God's smarter than we are. 
He wants to be loved in a true, genuine, personal way. And my point is, your will is not big enough, good enough for you to live for. The only will in the world that's worth living for and giving your whole life to and trusting with your last breath is the will of God. Jesus died to give you that life. That's why he said in John chapter 10 that he had come to give us life and life abundantly. Not life remade here, life better than we ever imagined, life as once God intended before sin wrecked everything. All of that has to do with understanding. But Paul's not done praying. Look at verse 11. He's going to express this as a wish, but it's still part of his prayer, his desire for these ordinary Christians. He says, may you be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, that's Jesus, in whom, in Jesus, we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Let's back up and keep it simple. You correctly said in verse 9, Paul is praying that they would know God's will. In other words, how God wanted them to live, how he wanted their lives changed, how he wanted them to bear fruit in all kinds of good work, in every different kind of goodness. Now, this next passage that begins with the word may in verse 11, what's he asking for here? First, he asks for wisdom, for understanding. What's he asking God to give them here? Strength, or, keep reading, power. The Bible, it can be a complicated book, but if you'll just slow down and ask God to open it up to you, you'll see that it makes perfect sense of life because understanding what to do is one thing. Having the power to do it is entirely another. Paul prays for both. Let me give you an example that came to my mind Wednesday morning at 6 a.m. in Sunset Beach. You see, on Wednesday morning at 6 a.m., after a uh, brief layoff of five years from personal fitness and eating eating anything that resembled something healthy, I decided to rejoin an old workout partner in a workout regime that he has continued doing since I've known him. We were once training buddies. We did all kinds of fun stuff together. I was not once the lump of mashed potatoes that you see before you today. I was leaner, I was stronger, I was younger, okay? Life was better. Now, after about a five-year break, I decided to rejoin Chris and just go back to the old stuff. What he's been doing forever, I just decided to drop right back in. That involved, among other things, the soft sand of Sunset Beach and a 52-pound kettlebell. If you don't know what a kettlebell is, it's a cannonball with a handle on it, okay? My buddy is... He might actually be a cyborg, okay? He has strength that doesn't appear to be human at, uh, uh, from certain points of view. And at a certain point, I, about five minutes in, I said, do you remember CPR? And he said, yes, I do. And we, we continued. And there was a certain part of the workout where his idea was, we're going to take this 52-pound kettlebell and hold it straight overhead and run over there. Here's my point. I had the understanding. I lacked the power. He held it up, and I looked in amazement. 
He just kind of ran over to the guard tower, holding the 52-pound kettlebell over his head. I went like this. Oh, man, I'm going to put it on my shoulder. Yeah, that's... Uh, I carried it with both hands on the shoulder and just kind of trotted. I told him I had to be home at 7, so I'm... 6.16. Too bad. There's still time to uh, try to do this. See, to be pleasing to God, you not only need the understanding, you need understanding that God will give to you. Notice that verb is passive. Paul is praying that they will be filled. Not that they will achieve insight, not that they will get smarter. He is praying that God himself, their father who loves them and gave them his son, will show up in their everyday lives with all of these pagan and religious voices shouting at them that there is something in someone better than Jesus, that God will show up in their jobs and their marriages and their parenting. That's what he talks about in the last half of the letter. In other words, these were normal, ordinary people just like you. Many of them were slaves. They had hard lives in a hard world with all kinds of competition, all kinds of distractions, all manner of discouragement. Paul says, the first thing I have not stopped praying for is for God to show up and fill you with spiritual wisdom and understanding. I want Him to lift your eyes up higher. I want Him to remove the blindness that this world is all that matters that getting through your hard circumstances is the only thing worth living for. I am asking for God to fill you with His wisdom so that you'll know what He wants you to do and be able to do it so that you'll abound in every kind of good work and be very fully pleasing to Him. But that's going to take more than understanding, Paul says. I am also praying, verse 11, that He may strengthen you with all power according to His glorious might. And then those next few words, it gets really, really practical. He says, I want you to have understanding and strength and power so that you will have endurance and patience with joy. Those two Greek words really count. Endurance has to do, see if this makes sense of your life. Endurance has to do with impossible situations. Patience has to do with impossible people. You probably have a little of both. There are some circumstances, some difficulties in life that are so painful, so difficult that they simply must be endured. They're not changing. They're not going to change. Many of you, as a very simple for instance, many of you deal with chronic physical pain. And Paul says something very practical. In those impossible situations, if you walk along with Jesus, it is possible for God to show up and give you first the understanding and then the power to deal with impossible situations in what way? He says with joy. That's what Jesus does. See, the rest of the world may endure, but they don't do it with joy. They do it with bitterness and teeth grinding and complaining Someone who has their eyes on a greater Savior and a greater future is able to endure even impossible situations with joy. And then he says also he wants to give you patience with joy. Those are those difficult people who don't seem to change and don't seem to go away either. Paul says in all of that, you are giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints of light. 
He goes on to explain, He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son. In other words, Paul is praying for them to have power to understand God's will and to do it. I am praying, he says, that you will have God's strength to do it. What does that life look like? It looks like this. It is fruitful. In other words, as that person follows Jesus into the ordinary, everyday, life-is-hard situations that life on a sin-wrecked world offers, they bear good fruit everywhere. They don't pick their spots. One of the ways that I know that I'm being fueled by my wisdom and understanding is I'll pick my spots and where I choose to act like a Christian. Okay? Okay? So if I get home from being a nice little Christian pastor and I'm out of Christian strength and I tear my kids' heads off, you know what I've just actually shown? I was never the power of God. That was all Bruce. And I faked it. Paul says when you have this understanding and this strength, you bear fruit in every good work. You don't get to pick your spot, in other words. One of the biggest, most misquoted Bibles. People will say regarding certain things that Jesus has told us to do, that's not my gift. Oh, really? Loving people's not your gift? <laughs> Kindness isn't your gift. Listen, we're disciples. Everything Jesus did, we are to do. Do some things come more naturally? Absolutely. But the point of the fruit, singular, of the Spirit is you don't get to choose. God produces all of those things in everyone who is really following Him. Some will, be, some will come quicker and easier. They will be more in line with your experience and your temperament. Your good or bad home life may make it more or less difficult for you to show up as a Christian in some areas more than others, but God wants to produce a life that is fruitful in all areas of life and also a life that is patient, as I've been telling you. And finally, he says in verse 12, in all of this, you are giving thanks to the Father. There is nothing perhaps that more denies the gospel than ungrateful Christians. See, because the Colossians' life was hard. As you keep reading the letter, if you understand the practical instructions he's giving to them, it emerges that life is not easy for them. They're a very small, lonely little community helped only by one local guy who told them the good news about Jesus. That's why Paul is writing with so much love and intensity and clarity, trying to strengthen what Jesus is doing in that town, in this little church. Paul says, as you walk all of that out, you are giving thanks to the Father, and here's why. He says, He has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. Qualified. See, religion invites you to qualify yourself. If you ever tried to join a team, whether it's sports or academics, you ever tried to belong to something with the qualifying test or something that had a cut, you know what that's about. Almost everything in life invites you to qualify yourself. That's what testing's all about. No one's going to do that for you. You're going to show up with your number two pencil and you're going to show whether you're qualified or not understand the grace of Jesus. Paul says, the, you're always thanking your Father because He's the one who qualified you 
He qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. In other words, you're wealthy already. I want to be careful here because I don't want to be misunderstood. Sometimes we who are Bible teachers tell you, we sell the gospel short by telling you that you're telling you only that the debt of your sin has been canceled and paid for. That's true, but that's not the whole story. It's even better than that. Paul is saying in this same passage, your debts are paid, but it's better than that. You have an inheritance that God gave you because He qualified you. Think of it like this. Bill Gates shows up and he says, I'll give you two choices. I'll pay all your bills or I'll make you incredibly wealthy. What are you going with? Folks, this isn't a complicated choice. I'm going to say it again. <laughs> he says, bring me all your credit cards. I'm going to pay off all your bills. That's choice number one. Or you can, you can be incredibly wealthy. What are you choosing? Wealth. If you have wealth, you can pay your bills. Right? Again, not hard. I need to think through these word pictures better, apparently, because <laughs> same thing happened in the first service. I'm clearly not communicating clearly. Paul says at the end of the passage, you have forgiveness, but he starts with something that's even better. You not only have forgiveness, forgiveness brings you even. Forgiveness wipes the slate clean. I'd much rather have a vast inheritance than simply have someone pay off my bills. I'm grateful for both. Your father loves you so much that not only did he pay your sin debt, he also welcomed you into his inheritance. And the next verse says, Paul's just running out of adjectives to describe how good Jesus is and how good this salvation is. He has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light, and he has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. In other words, you have a whole new identity. You were once in darkness, and God moved you out of that. It's not only that your debt is paid, it also means that you're delivered. Not only is your debt paid, your enemy is disarmed. Someone once explained the gospel as a mulligan. Everybody know what a mulligan is? Mulligan's a do-over. Poor example. A mulligan says, we're not going to count that against you, and we're going to let you do what? Try again. When it comes to pleasing God in my own strength, you can give me 10,000 mulligans. I'm going to blow it every single time. It doesn't matter how many shots you give me. I need somebody else to take the shot for me. That's what the gospel is announcing. Jesus did it for you. He didn't give you a clean slate. He gave you a new identity. He brought you into the kingdom of light. He delivered you at the cost of the death of his own son. He destroyed the powers of darkness and brought you into light and made you impossibly rich. And verse 14 says, in Jesus we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Forgiveness means that the purchase price of a slave has been paid. It's obvious what forgiveness of sins means. In other words, you're not only it's not only that your debt has been forgiven, it's that you're free. Everything else aside from Jesus, even well-meaning things like recovery programs apart from the grace of Jesus, invite people to try again and do better. That's not the announcement of the gospel. The announcement of the gospel is that the same Christ who made the world by himself, through himself, and for himself 
That's what the very next passage we're going to look at next Sunday announces about Jesus. He is the creator of everything, and it was made through him and for him. He holds it together. That person loves you so much that he showed up in actual human history so that you would know him, and he would know what sort of life he had died on the cross to give you. And now his invitation and what Paul is praying for these ordinary Christians is that they will know what God wants and then from God, the same God, I have not only the understanding of what God wants, but the power to do what God says so that what the world sees is a life that looks with every passing day, with every step with Jesus, the Christian looks more and more and more like Christ. It's the best life anybody could ever have. Is it easy? Not at all. It requires endurance with impossible situations. It requires patience with impossible people. But because of what the Father has done and the Father has given, all of that, even that, can be lived out with joy so that God gets the credit, not His children. He's a good Savior, and you should trust Him. If you're not absolutely certain that you're following Him already, if you thought you once were, but the way your actual life and thoughts play out on a day-to-day -day basis, make you wonder whether you actually know Him. My simple invitation to you is that you would give up on yourself and say, Jesus, save me. Qualify me. Transfer me. Redeem me. Forgive me. All of those words, they're just like facets on a beautiful jewel, the diamond turning slowly in the light to let you see all the different ways in which God loves you and invited you into a life where you can not only understand what He wants, but you can actually do it. That's the community that Jesus is forming at Crosspoint. That's the plan that God has for Christians everywhere. That's the life He invites you on. And listen, I've used a tremendous amount of Bible language today. I've been all through that passage and explained a lot of different words. Let me make it very, very simple. There is no one but Jesus Christ who can save you. No one. No one can give you this life apart from Christ. This church can't. No religious teacher can. Only Jesus can save you. But if you will trust Him, if you will simply humble yourself and know that He wants to save you and say, Jesus, I'm sorry for my sin. Deliver me. You paid for my sin on the cross. I understand that much. I trust you to save me. He will. And then he's going to invite you on a lifelong journey to follow him. And if you walk with him day after day, and sometimes you're quick to obey, and sometimes you're slow, and sometimes he has to be very patient with you, and sometimes he has to retrain you and take you through difficult circumstances so you'll relearn to trust him. If you keep walking with him, you'll look back in a few months, in a few years, and you'll be astonished at the person not that you've become, but the person He made you because He really does want you to know His will and He really can give you the strength to do it. Let's pray together. In very simple terms, I'm inviting you to pray to live the way God wants you to with the strength that He gives you. That's it. Ask God to live the way He wants you to live with the strength that He can supply to you. The first step, 
the vital life-giving step is the step some of you may need to take this morning where you're not certain that you've actually trusted Him, Jesus, personally, to be your Savior. You may have been trusting your own efforts, you may have been going to church, you may have been learning a great deal about Him, but you're not entirely sure, based on the evidence in your own heart, in your own conscience, in your day-to-day behavior, that He is your actual Savior. You're just not sure. This is the time to be honest. This is the most important time not to fake it, not to hope for the best, but to make sure, to make sure of the best. So if you're not certain that Jesus is your Savior, let me invite you to humbly, personally trust Him. I did that once years ago. It's changed my life. I've never been the same. I haven't been perfect for a moment since, but I've never been the same. He can do the same for you if you'll turn to Him in simple trust and say, Jesus, forgive me, save me qualify me, transfer me, get me out of this darkness and put me into the light. He will. And many of you, you're Christians, you know it, but you've been settling maybe for a second best question. How can I make a living instead of how can I do God's will? How can I show up as a disciple in these impossible situations with these impossible people in all of these different roles that I have? Ask him right now to fill you with the knowledge of his will and give you the strength to do it, and he will. God answers those prayers. They're in the Bible because they're the kind of prayers that God always answers. Lord, move across this room in all all these different lives and show everyone what we need from you next. I pray, God, that those who don't know you as Savior aren't sure of that would make sure right now by reaching out to you in prayer at this moment and asking you to save them. For my brothers and sisters who do know you and love you, give us, Lord, a hunger to know your will and the strength to do it. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.